Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, please open to Ephesians 1, verse 3, and then also put a bookmark in Genesis 3, verse 1. So glad to see you all. If you're new with us, thank you for, for being here today. You know, whatever we believe about God, uh, one thing that unites us all in this room and in our community, regardless of our ages or backgrounds, is that we have all done impure things. We have all disobeyed God. We've all broken God's holy laws. In other words, we have all sinned. And further, I imagine that many of us have struggled with feelings of guilt and shame because of the impure things we've done and or because of the impure things done to us. In his excellent book entitled Shame Interrupted, Dr. Ed Welch writes, Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human, you were treated as if you were less than human, or you were associated with something less than human, and there are witnesses. The gospel of Jesus speaks good news to our guilt and to our shame. Only the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection for sinners offers us total healing and restoration from our impurity, our guilt, and our shame. Colossians 1, 21 to 23 says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So in order to understand how Jesus Christ heals our guilt and shame, we need to understand how guilt and shame became part of our human experience. And so we need to look back at the beginning, back at Genesis chapter three. Turn to Genesis three, verse one, if you have that. Otherwise, we'll put it on the screen. Three, one to 13 says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord, had, the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, then in verses 14 to 19, God curses the serpent and the woman and the man for each of their disobedience toward God. Now let's hop down to verses 20 to 24 where it says, 
the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's a lot here in Genesis 3 that we're just not going to get to today. But Ed Welch points out three ways that sin has corrupted, corrupted us according to this passage. First, sin contaminates us. Sin contaminates our bodies and our spirits, making us impure, unholy, and blameworthy. Sin contaminates us. Second, sin shames us. R.C. Sproul writes that Adam and Eve were ashamed because of their unrighteousness. They were not able to stand naked in God's holy and righteous presence. Their consciences were deformed and their joy was turned to shame. Sin shames us. And third, sin separates us from God. When Adam and Eve became contaminated by sin, uh, they could no longer live in God's presence in the garden. So God cast them out of the garden, and from then on, God and humans would no longer be natural friends, but would be natural enemies. And so sin separates us from God. Sin contaminates us, sin shames us, and sin separates us from God. And that is the reality of the human experience that we see all throughout history. Um, ancient Old Testament Books like Leviticus describe the extraordinary measures that God required the Jewish people to take to be purified from their contamination, to cover their shame, and to live in the presence of God's people near God. And then thousands of years later, in a different culture, in the first century AD, when Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians, he was writing to a group of people who had committed many impure and shameful acts before they trusted in Christ. We know this about Ephesus, that most of the Ephesian Christians were from a Gentile background, not a Jewish background. They had participated in all sorts of pagan worship and religious ceremonies. Uh, many of them had been sorcerers involved in witchcraft, had opened themselves up to demons. Many of them had engaged in all sorts of sexually immoral activities. And so Paul desperately wanted them to know what Jesus had done to purify them from their contamination and to cover their shame and to bring them to God. And even today, because the gospel doesn't change, because God doesn't change, God wants us to know that there is hope for the impure people, contaminated people, broken people, shameful, and rebellious people. There's hope for people like us. Christian, God wants you to know what Jesus did, and he wants you to daily remember what Jesus did to purify you from contamination of sin, to cover your shame from sin, and to bring you back to God. And if you're here today and you have not begun to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then God wants you to know also that there is good news for you too. You can be cleansed. You can be clothed. You can be made friends with your God by trusting in Jesus Christ. Okay, now let's turn again to Ephesians 1, which is the book we've been looking at the past six or eight weeks. Before we read this, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promises and the truth of your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to use this word today to encourage our hearts, to convict us of sin, to trust in you again, Lord. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 1, three to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." So the tone of this, again, is praise. That's what Paul wants us to do, to see what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and to praise him. And I've summarized this big idea of Paul's like this. Praise the Lord for loving us immensely by blessing us lavishly with his glorious grace through Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul describes uh, the different spiritual blessings that God gives his people as an expression of his love for them in Christ. And so far, we've, we've looked at God's predestinating love, God's adopting love, and God's redeeming love for his people. And today, we're gonna talk about God's sanctifying love for his people. God's sanctifying love. To sanctify something means to make something holy, to make it pure, to make it pleasing to God. This is what God does for his redeemed people through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God sanctifies us. God makes us holy, he makes us pure, and he makes us pleasing to himself. Now, what would you tell somebody if they asked you, why in the world did God choose his people in Christ before the foundation of of the world, like this passage says? Well, you might say, well, to forgive them for their sins. Or you might say, to rescue them from hell. Or you might say, to give them eternal life. And you'd be right if you said those things, but all of those things are part of something bigger that God has in mind. God chose Christians in Jesus before the foundation of the world in order to make them holy and blameless before him to the praise of his name. Ephesians 1.4, let's look at it again. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So to be holy means to be sanctified, uh, to be completely pure, to be set apart for God. That's what it means to be holy, to be sanctified, pure, and set apart for God. And then Paul says that God chose us to be blameless, and to be blameless means to be without any blame, without fault, without blemish, physically, spiritually, um, or morally. Holiness is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That you would not remain corrupted by sin, but that you would become holy in Christ. That you would not remain in guilt and shame, but that you would become blameless in Christ. That you would not remain separated from God as his enemy, but that you would draw near to God through faith in Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, because we have been chosen to holiness, we must and will become holy. God has not chosen us before the foundation of the world in order to create for us the possibility of holiness. He has chosen us to holiness. Being chosen and being holy are inseparable. Now, in the remainder of our time, I want to answer four questions. 
First of all, why is it necessary for God's children to be holy and blameless before him? Why is it necessary? Second, how does God the Father view Jesus Christ's holiness and blamelessness? Third, how does God the Father view his adopted children's holiness and blamelessness? And fourth, how does this change the way that we view God and ourselves? So let's take those one at a time. First, why is it necessary for God's children to be holy and blameless before him? Well, it's necessary for God's children to be holy and blameless before him in order for them to become like him and in order for them to be with him. So to become like him and to be with him, holiness is a non-negotiable. It has to happen. It's mandatory, okay? Throughout the Old Testament and repeated in the New Testament, we read God's command to his children, be holy because I am holy. Be holy. What's our reason to be holy? Because God is holy. So God is the embodiment of perfection in every way. And Genesis 1 says uh, that God created us, how? In his image, uniquely as human beings, in order to be his image bearers. Okay, that's what it means to be created in his image, to bear his image. So God created us as humans, unique from all creation, to bear his image and to project to creation, visible and invisible, the image of God's holiness. Lloyd-Jones says, God is absolute light and glory and perfection. He is absolutely pure, without any suspicion of alloy or any admixture. And the astounding thing we are told here is that God has chosen us in Christ to become like himself. That is his plan and purpose for us. That is our destiny to be like God, holy and without blemish. Now just to be clear, God chose Christians before the foundation of the world to become holy people in his sight. God's will for us to be like him does not mean that we will become gods like him, okay? Instead, God has willed for us to become holy people because he is holy. And in addition to becoming like God, God's children must also be holy and blameless before him in order to be with him. God is holy, 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 completely pure, completely good, completely without blemish. The most beautiful thing that exists. God's glory is holy. God's name is holy. God's presence is holy. God's word is holy. That's why we call it the Holy Bible. God's heaven is holy. And so in order for us to come near to God, he has to make us holy. And we see this reality over and over again in the Old Testament. Whenever the Jewish people became ritually or morally unclean or impure, whether that happened to them knowingly or, knowing, or unknowingly, whether that was intentional or unintentional, they could not be in the presence of God if they were unclean or impure. And often God would not even allow them to be in the presence of his people. They couldn't live in the camp if they were impure. And people who had become impure in any number of ways, they had to follow God's strict instructions in order to become pure again, in order to become acceptable to him and to his community of people, in order to be able to live in the camp in his presence. And so it's absolutely necessary for God's children to be holy and blameless before him in order to become like God, which is his will for us, and in order for us to be with God. So second, how does God the Father view Jesus Christ's holiness and blamelessness? Well, God the Father's son, Jesus Christ, has always been fully God. 
even before he lived on earth physically. And as God the Son, Jesus Christ um, has always been entirely pure, uncontaminated, and blameless in the Father's sight. So to become a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, meaning God's plan was to become a sacrifice that was our substitute, in order for that to happen, Jesus had to leave heaven to come to earth to add to himself human flesh, to put himself underneath his own perfect law, and then he had to obey his own law flawlessly as one of us, as a human being. And it is not a mystery how God the Father felt about his son while Jesus lived on earth. On several occasions, God the Father publicly declared with an audible voice how pleased he was with his holy, beloved son. For instance, Matthew 3, 16 to 17 says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And then later in Matthew 17, one to five, it says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus Christ lived in the world, in our world, but he was not of the world. Jesus Christ, God the Son, was pleasing to God the Father before he came to earth, while he obeyed God's law on the earth, and after he lived on earth, which is why God resurrected Jesus, it's why Jesus ascended to heaven, and it's why Jesus is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father, because the Father is pleased with Jesus. The father views his son Jesus' holiness and blamelessness as glorious, pure, perfect, and pleasing to him. Why does that matter? Because that's not how he views our righteousness and holiness and blamelessness before him apart from Jesus. Since none of us are holy and blamelessness, uh, blameless on our own, we must become connected to Jesus through faith in order for us to please God. And that leads us to the very important third question. How does God the Father view his adopted children's holiness and blamelessness? Well, last Sunday we talked about God's redeeming love. God's redeeming love includes two components, right? Ransom and remission. Ransom refers to the payment God paid with the blood of Jesus to set us free from slavery to sin. And remission refers to God's removal of our trespasses from us by canceling our debt to him. So ransom and remission were both accomplished through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. Now listen, Jesus not only freed us and paid our debt for us, but Jesus also gave to us his holiness and his blamelessness. So just like God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins to cover their shame, so also Jesus covered us with the robe of his righteous blood to eternally cover our shame. Brian Chappell writes, God does not pay our debt and then leave us with a zero balance. Rather than have us destitute, he opens the vaults of heaven to give us the benefits of the storehouse of his grace made full by Christ's obedience. 
On the cross, Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sinfulness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the word that the Bible uses to summarize all these blessings from God is justification. Justification is God's legal decree that we who trust in Jesus are both not guilty of sin and also righteous in God's sight. Romans 5, 18 to 20 says, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So in Christ, God no longer sees us as contaminated, but as pure. In Christ, God no longer sees us as shameful or naked, but as covered by his holiness. In Christ, God no longer sees us as his rejected enemies, but as his accepted, adopted children. Praise God. Now, how can we be sure of this, right? How can we be really sure that Jesus' death really accomplished all these blessings for us? This is how you can be sure. Because Jesus rose from the dead, okay? God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to display visibly his total pleasure in his son and in all who trust in his son. Jesus' resurrection visibly displayed that although Jesus had been condemned by humanity, though he had been contaminated with our sin, though he had been shamed for us, though he had been separated from the Father in our place, he put that to death and he rose again and he is forever holy. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. Jesus is vindicated. Jesus is God. And all who trust in Jesus are credited by God with Jesus' eternal purity and his blamelessness and his holiness. That is great news. So the reason we can be confident in this, the reason that we be confident that, that Jesus is God, that he perfectly obeyed God's law, that he really ransomed us, that he really remitted our trespasses, that he really paid our debt, that he really gave us his righteousness, that the God, God the Father truly loves us, gladly accepts us, is because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection matters, and it is critical to our faith. So now, God the Father views his adopted children's holiness and blamelessness as the same as Jesus's holiness and blamelessness. Wow. Then the fourth question is this, how does this change the way that we view God and the way that we view ourselves? So remember, we're talking about God's sanctifying love, which is that, this aspect of his love that makes us holy, that makes us blameless, that makes us pleasing to him. First, um, how does God's sanctifying love change the way that we view God? Well, God's sanctifying love tells us that God the Father is not a God who contaminates his children. God cleans his children. God makes his children pure. God makes his children holy and blameless in his sight. And I know that, you know, this passage is rich with language about God as Father. And that's difficult for some of us to, to, gr to grasp or to wrestle with because maybe our dads were not good dads. However, the answer isn't to not see God as Father. The answer is to see God as the perfect Father. And so, you know, I'm so sorry if you really, I mean, I was thinking about this this week. If you had an earthly father who you feel contaminated you, who, who 
corrupted you. That is not right. That makes God's heart cry. God the Father is not like that toward you. God the Father protects you. God the Father purifies you. God the Father takes away your shame. He doesn't shame you. You're in Jesus. God's sanctifying love also tells us that God the Father doesn't want to remain enemies with us because of our sin. God wants you to be reconciled to him. God wants you to receive his forgiveness and his reconciliation and his adoption and his redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. So what that means is we have a response to make to this gospel. We reject it or we trust in it. If you're not trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is God's word for you. Repent, change your mind, and turn to the God who loves you. (laughs) Turn to Jesus. Without faith in Jesus, it is impossible to please God. And if you find that Difficult, that's not surprising. If you find that difficult to trust in Jesus, that's not surprising because your natural human mode of operation now is one of distrust in God and hostility toward God. And so this is what you need to do. You need to plead with God to give you faith in him. If you're having wrestling with that, think about there are stories about Jesus walking through the streets and men are like, Lord, Help my disbelief. Help me. Give me faith in you. See, true faith, the saving faith that, that produces holiness comes from God to begin with. And so ask God to give you power to believe this great news about what Jesus has accomplished for you. Ask God to give you eyes of faith that see the light of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, what else does God's sanctifying love tell us about God? Ephesians 1.4, let's read it again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God the Father chose you, Christian, to be holy and blameless so that you would be before him, that you would be near him, that you would abide in him. And this means that God the Father wants relationship with you. That's what it means to be before him. It's what it means that the Father adopts you. It's what it means that he is the Father. He wants relationship with you. And this is your eternal destiny, to know the Father. This is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, three. You have a best friend in God. God always has time for us. Isn't that amazing? I wish that I had time for everybody. <laughs> I don't. I feel bad sometimes as a pastor. I have, I did, the way I work is I have a pretty, I try to keep to a schedule and I try, because I just have certain things I have to get done, certain meetings I have to do each week. And unfortunately, I can't be, I can't get to everything that needs to get done. But if I don't keep a schedule, you know who pays the price? My family. And that means I'm working on my day off. And so if, in order for me to protect my family, I have to have a schedule. But what that means is there are times when I can't meet with other people. And that's why we, ha- we have a team of elders and a team of leaders because Dan can't be God to us. Your pastor can't be. But God is God for you. God is God for you. You see that in the Apostle Paul, he was writing, I can't remember which letter it was. I might have, I don't know, I won't even try to guess. But he talks about, I think it was his second trial in Rome when everybody had abandoned him. Everybody. Some of them, you know, maybe for good reasons, maybe for bad reasons, they just weren't there. He stood alone. But you know who was there? Jesus. God was with him. And so we need to remember that God always has time 
for us. You don't have to schedule an appointment with him. He always wants to be with you. He will never put you down or hurt you. He always has your back. You're always safe with God. That's the kind of father we all want and the father that we need and the father that we have through Jesus Christ. And this type of intimacy with God is not ours because we've earned it or because it's due to us. It's possible because God has declared us holy and blameless in Jesus Christ because Christ went to the cross for us and he rose again. Praise God. Thank you, God, for doing this for us. Second, how does God's sanctifying love change the way that we view ourselves? How does God's sanctifying love change the way that we view ourselves? It's very important to understand that our sanctification, um, our process of becoming holy by the power of the Holy Spirit is both already and not yet. And we've talked about that several times in this first passage in Ephesians. In one sense, we've already been declared holy in God's sight. That is awesome news. Okay, Hebrews 10.10 says, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in another sense, the fullness of our holiness has not yet been realized. And so God is sanctifying us in this life. Hebrews 10.14, just a few verses later, says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so this means that the rest of our lives as as followers of Jesus is a sanctifying process. Uh, By God's spirit at work in us, we're learning how to become holy. We're learning how to become pure and obedient to God's word. We're learning how to be what God has already declared us to be, holy. The Holy Spirit is teaching us as individual Christians and as a church how to kill sin, how to kill sinful habits that contaminate us. The the Holy Spirit is teaching us individually and as a church how to foster holy and blameless thoughts. The kind of thoughts God says in his word he wants us to think. How do we know what those thoughts are? We have to read the word. We have to read the word. We get to read the word. The Holy Spirit's teaching us how to foster holy and blameless actions. He's teaching us which relationships in our lives are helping us to become holy and blamelessness and which relationships need to be altered because they're not leading us to holiness and blamelessness. The Holy Spirit teaches us this again as we read God's word. You know, you can read God's word, you can be an expert in the law, you can be an expert in the word and not become sanctified. The Pharisees would school us in the word of God. Just the reality. But Jesus doesn't seem impressed with the Pharisees because they find their salvation in being experts in the law while they spent years and years and years and years reading the law every day, yet they haven't submitted themselves to the creator of the law and said, I haven't kept this. Would you help me, Lord? one day at a time, become more holy like you. The Holy Spirit teaches us this um, with the word. Jesus talked about this as he prayed to God for us in John 17, 16 to 19. He said he's praying for us. (laughs) They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Make them holy in the truth. And then he says how? Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So as God works out his holiness in us and through us one small step at a time, what's happening? Well, 
the image of God in us that was warped by sin, the image that we bear as his image bearers is being renewed to more accurately image forth to the visible and invisible creation the holiness of God. Because that is glorious. Because God is glorious. So that means every day as we submit ourselves to the Lord one word at a time, one thought at a time, as we bring everything under the headship of Jesus Christ in our lives, God is glorified. One of the things I, I think about that has just really been on my mind this year that blows my mind is this. God sees what is done in secret. You don't need men's praise. He sees what's done in secret. When, and so we have to remember that, you know, God is glorified uh, uh, by things we do in our life that nobody else sees. And this is another component. There's an entire invisible creation that we cannot see that is watching us. And when God does amazing things in our lives, when he sees us open the Bible for the first time in our truck, because we haven't opened it in a while, when he sees us pray to the Lord, that sends a powerful message of the redemption of Christ to the invisible spiritual world. God gets glory. God's glorified by things in the universe and things at the bottom of the sea that we've never discovered. It's all for his glory, not for us. And our sanctification, this process will be completed one day, which is hard to grasp. But what will happen, it's called our glorification in Romans 8, and that's kind of the final step of our sanctification. It's on the last day when God gives us glorified physical bodies that will forever be holy and without blemish. You know, I think a lot of us think of the end game as being spiritual beings in heaven floating around. Well, God made us good. He made us very good, is what Genesis said. And very good was a spirit combined with a physical body that God deemed as very good. And that's the game plan to restore everything that Satan contaminated. And so that's why the restoration of our physical bodies in the future is incredible. Think about this. A body then that is no longer corruptible, that is no longer blemished, that is, uh, it's, hard, it's just hard to imagine, but it's, it's gonna be like Jesus's body. And um, Paul kind of refers to this in Philippians 1.6 where he says that he who began a good work in you, so God's the one who began this saving, sanctifying work in you, he's the one who will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He's gonna be the one to bring it to completion. A sanctification, becoming like God, is not an easy process, okay? It's hard. If it was easy, more people would be signing up for it. It requires battling our flesh daily. It requires begging God for help continuing to, you know, uh, we have to continue to keep our eyes on Jesus daily because our motives can get twisted so fast as to why we even pursue holiness. We need to continue to remember we're saved by grace and not by our works. We need to continue to use every tool that we have available to us that's gonna help us become more godly um, and more pleasing to the Lord. And, and as we do that, as we grow in holiness, uh, we acknowledge all of us, every person has been damaged by sin and at the same time, uh, it, it, is, it is an unhelpful thing to only use the language of we're broken people because it, it insinuates that we are merely victims of sin only. And that's why a lot of churches don't use that language. They only use the language, we're broken people. We're just broken. Well, you know what, you were complicit in a lot of sins too. And so we have to acknowledge that. Um, that being said, that is a healthy thing to acknowledge and that being said, you need to hear this, it's not God's will for you to wallow in everlasting regret and shame, okay? Instead, God wants you to daily meditate 
on how he already suffered your shame for you on the cross and then publicly declared you shameless through his resurrection. So in Christ, think about this. God sees you as blameless without blame for the things you've done because of Jesus. If that doesn't give you a reason to daily worship the Lord, I don't know what will, right? That's awesome. Thank God that he wants healing and restoration for us. And and that he tells us how to get there. The only pathway to everlasting freedom and restoration and purity and holiness and acceptance is through Jesus. It's through Jesus' saving work for you through his death and resurrection. That's why that's the good news for us as individuals and for our neighbors. It's all what Jesus has done for us. Through, and, and really the whole Godhead. God the Father sent the Son. Jesus accomplished the work. The Holy Spirit applies the work. God loves us and is compassionate and merciful toward us. Ed, Ed Welch writes this. If you want Jesus, you must be willing to accept the honor with that relationship. Hear that? You must be willing to accept the honor of that relationship. Your royal status, which is ascribed to you, it's not achieved by you, has been unveiled in Jesus Christ. So when your mind is, is filled with guilty feelings and regrets and shame that, that you've already, uh, about sins that you've already dealt with, things you've already confessed to Jesus, things that you've already gotten right with people about. You need to confess uh, those, you need, sorry, you need to cast away those thoughts of condemnation. You need to remember the truth of God's word in Romans 8.1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In his book entitled Rid of My Disgrace, Dr. Justin Holcomb writes, It is Jesus' death on the cross that forgives our sins and cleanses the stains. The stains on our soul, both those stains resulting from sins we have committed and that have been committed against us. And the glorious result is a life purified of all unrighteousness, no longer defiled, but rather cleansed through a relationship with Jesus and his people because of his death on the cross to remove sin and its stain of filth. Listen to this. Because of the cross, we can now be fully exposed. Because God no longer identifies us by what we have done or by what has been done to us. If we trust in Jesus, God sees us as Jesus was. Pure, righteous, and without blemish. We have been given the righteousness of Christ. We can't add to it or subtract from it. In Jesus, you are made completely new. And so in light of the knowledge that God has declared us holy and blameless, we seek now to know him and follow his commands, not driven by fear. Like if I don't do this right, I'm going to hell. Uh, Not driven by the feeling that we need to do more in order to make ourselves acceptable because we say, I can't do anything to make myself acceptable. Instead, we trust in Jesus and seek to obey the Lord because we know that he already obeyed his law perfectly for us. That is so freeing to know that because of the obedience of Christ, God's disposition towards us is one of grace. And so, as we seek to live lives of obedience to God, then what do we do when we commit sins? when we commit impure things, when we sin against God and others. But we acknowledge our sin, hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit. We turn from our sin. We take our sins straight to Jesus and we confess those sins to him and he says he always forgives us. And there are many times when you need to confess your sin to others in order to get right with them And or there may be times when you need to confess sin to begin to kill sinful habits or sinful relationships that you have kept hidden. And I mean out loud. That's one of the graces of confession, I believe, confessing sin out loud to others. Once you get that out there, you're you're kind of accountable. It's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to have to confess that sin anymore. (laughs) 
I want to turn from that sin more and more. So do not let sin go unexposed in your life. Because who are we acting like when we try to hide when we're sinful? Adam and Eve. That's what they did. They tried to hide from God. And hiding only hurts us. It only hurts our relationship with God and with others. So instead, because of Jesus, we confess now sin to God and to others, knowing that whatever earthly consequences might be, might come for our sin, we don't need to fear anymore being exposed or shamed by God. We are forgiven and sanctified by God through the blood of Christ. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's wonderful news. All right, let me read Ephesians 1, 3 to 4 one more time because we want to leave this place on a praiseworthy note. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. All right, would you please stand with me? I'll close our time in prayer. Lord Jesus, you tell us that uh, if we say that we have no sin, we are liars. So we just admit right now, God, that we, we have sinned against you and against others, and all sin against others is ultimately sin against you. Um, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done to save us from what our sin deserves. Uh, we thank you for having compassion on us and for acting graciously toward us. Thank you. I mean, we just can't thank you enough that you didn't just offer an alter, uh, a, a, a way for the situation to be rectified, but that the only way it could be rectified was at the highest cost to yourself and that you executed on that, Jesus, so that we might be saved and so that your name might be glorified for all eternity. Thank you, God. Thank you that uh, in Jesus we can have our sins purified so that we're no longer contaminated. We can be purified, God. Thank you that because of Jesus, we are covered by the robe of his righteous blood and no longer in shame. And thank you that because of Jesus, we're brought near to our God who loves us. Lord, I pray that all who hear this today would, your Holy Spirit would drive it down deep in our hearts. This is my maker. This is the God I was created to worship. This is why I am here and why I exist for all eternity and I want to trust Jesus forever. Thank you, Lord. Please empower us to do that. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for being here today. Have a great day. And if you're new here or if you want to talk with some of the leaders, we'll be hanging out in the lobby. We'd love to meet you.